Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this event. Um, this, uh, this event is designed to roll out uh, the results of a project that was commissioned by the Australian government last year to look at how the United States and Australia, which of course share many interests and many approaches to economic and financial and other cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and to look at how the two countries can work more closely together in advancing interests that benefit our two countries as well as the broader region. Uh, and so um, they've come up with a report. It's actually much longer than this. This is the executive summary, uh, but, it, but there is a link to the full report, 80 pages or so, I think. 40. Uh, 40, oh sorry, 40 uh, online that goes into some of the analysis and the recommendations more deeply. Um, but we've assembled a really terrific panel here today to discuss the findings, the, the, the conclusions uh, and specific policy recommendations in five areas that were examined, um, which include infrastructure, uh, investment facilitation, energy, the digital economy, and financial services. Uh, and I have here on stage, uh, on the dais with me, um, Bill Costello, who's Minister Counselor of International Development at the Australian Embassy. Um, uh, Matthew Goodman, who was the Sherpa for this project. He's our, our Senior Vice President and Simon Chair in Political Economy here at CSIS. Um, uh, uh, Mark Sobel, who's the US Chairman uh, of OMFIF and the former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the US Department of the Treasury and uh, Nikos uh, Tsafos, who's a senior fellow in the Energy and National Security Program here at CSIS. And so we will uh, talk about the different areas of, of, uh, that, that, were, that were examined and get some reactions um, uh, of, the, of the findings and the recommendations. But let me first turn to Bill Costello to uh, give us an, uh, an overview of, of why this was, you know, how this idea came to the Australian government, why it was important for Australia to, uh, to, to commission this report. Sure, thanks Amy, and thanks to CSIS for the opportunity to uh, talk about this subject today. Um, so the broad backdrop to this report is probably well known to everybody in this room. There's a lot of change going on. Uh, the Indo-Pacific as a dynamic region, um, the economic weight of the globe is shifting to the region um, and uh, those shifts bring with them lots of uh, significant opportunities and also some challenges. And meanwhile, of course, there are challenges to the old international economic order, um, to the institutional underpinnings of the global economy. And all of that at the same time as we've got massive uh, technological change, uh, we've got some uh, negative reaction to all of that with some protectionist sentiment and so forth. So it means that the task of international economic cooperation is getting more complex and uh, more urgent. Now in a, in a process sense from the Australian government's point of view, uh, we released a foreign policy white paper in November of 2017 which talked a lot about the, the Indo-Pacific region that we live in and the type of Indo-Pacific region that we'd like to live in in the future. And it has characteristics that would be very familiar to uh, you and, and supported by US audiences, uh, open, free trade, uh, rules-based uh, order, um, uh, underpinned by democracies with human rights uh, and, and um, uh, personal and economic uh, freedom and liberalism. Um, and that white paper also recognised that there are a lot of trends in the region that aren't pointing in that direction. 
So it uh, put the challenge to uh, ourselves as a country to, uh, to both think more, uh, more deeply but be more active in shaping the Indo-Pacific region that we want to live in. And uh, that's what we're seeking to do. Um, one of the other things that this report makes extremely clear is that the US is an indispensable ally for us in this project, mm -hmm. that we can't get to the region we want to live in uh, without the US fully engaged and without working very closely with the US. So in, in the broad sense, that's the, the reason why we feel like it's important to uh, um, keep working on, on these issues. We're in the market for ideas and we're always in the market for uh, updating our relationship with the US as well. Thank you. And let me turn next to, to Matt. Um, Matt, from, from, from your perspective, um, how does this uh, work really advance U.S. interests from sort of U.S. point of view? And um, although this is, not, uh, a, a, this is not a representative of the Trump administration's thinking on these issues necessarily, um, the Trump administration, of course, has, has rolled out its Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, facing some criticism that there wasn't that much of a robust economic side to the Indo-Pacific strategy, in particular on the trade side. You know, Secretary Pompeo did roll out last July a few proposals in energy, digital economy, and infrastructure. And uh, do you see this report sort of supporting many of those initiatives, or is it, is it quite distinct, or where do you see the, the overlap? Great, thanks. Well, thanks, Amy. And, and thanks to uh, the Australian government for commissioning this uh, report and giving me a chance to work with Gordon de Brower, um, an old colleague from G20 days. Gordon was a uh, distinguished um, civil servant in, in, um, in Australia who rose to the, uh, well, he ultimately was a secretary in another department in, in energy and environment, but he was, uh, when I knew him, he was the G20 Sherpa, and, uh, and I was the yak uh, for the United States <laughs> under Mike Froman uh, in the G20, so we worked together, and he's a real sort of uh, uh, a hero of mine. He's a, a really, really a smart, thoughtful guy. So when, I, when he asked whether I'd be willing to partner with him to do this report for the Prime Minister's office, I said, delighted to do it. A couple of other colleagues, Cheryl Armstrong and Adam Triggs, joined us as well from uh, Australian National University and um, did a lot of the actual hard work uh, in this, so thanks to them as well. Um, it's only if you didn't say, Bill, I might have missed it, that there was an event uh, today yes. yeah, thank you for uh, in, in Canberra uh, at ANU to, um, to roll out a parallel report here, so a parallel uh, event to, uh, to roll out the report with all of those uh, gentlemen involved. Um, and I think, look, I think that um, we don't spend enough time in the economic world talking about Australia, uh, and at CSAS we should do more on Australia as an economic uh, power because uh, here, here's the, depending on whether you believe the World Bank or the IMF, this is the 13th or 14th largest economy in the world. Um, interesting that they differ on that. Um, uh, but that's big, uh, about a trillion and a half dollar uh, economy. Uh, it is, um, and my Australian friends are going to smile when I, when I say this, given recent politics in Australia, but it's a well-governed country. Um, it, uh, you know, it's, it hasn't had a recession in, I think, now 28 years and, and counting. Um, and that's, for, as an economics person, that's pretty darn good. I'm not sure that anybody, maybe the Dutch did that once uh, or came close. I think Australia may have passed the uh, Netherlands in that regard. Uh, so that's a good thing. And it um, obviously is uh, very uh, important in the trade and investment uh, uh, regime globally, but also in, in the Asia Pacific. It's mm -hmm. been a, a leader in, uh, I mentioned the G20, uh, where Gordon was a leader in that group. 
on, on behalf of his country, uh, and uh, a leader in APEC. In fact, Australia uh, founded APEC um, with our, I think, you know, following behind. Uh, uh, and um, so it's, it's influential, and you know, we share, we're allies, we share a lot of uh, values, a lot of interests, um, and it's really important to try to find ways that we can work more constructively uh, in, um, in the economic realm in this important region, as Bill mentioned, dynamic and lots of opportunities and risks. Um, and so that's kind of the reason that we did all this. And we tried to identify um, you know, four or five areas that we could uh, find some new thinking about, not all new, some of it's just reinforcing things that, that we all know about and have thought about, but um, we're trying to come up with some, uh, some new focus on where, ways the U.S. and Australia can enhance their cooperation. You know, I'm probably being more frank than I'm supposed to be, but we tried to stay away from trade because although trade is, is critical uh, to the story, it's, it's, it would have been a sort of lightning rod if we had gotten too much into those issues. We all know those are a bit controversial. So we, we decided to you know, cover a few other important areas, um, you know, infrastructure, investment facilitation, uh, digital economy, um, energy, and uh, financial systems. Um, and uh, we co-wrote the, the chapters, uh, divvied them up and shared them and uh, offered comments and came up with you know, half a dozen recommendations in each. And I think you know, these are practical ideas for how the US and Australia can move forward and fill out the free and open Indo-Pacific. Just last point, just to respond to you that uh, I think this is consistent with what uh, the Trump administration has broadly um, uh, laid out as, as, as a strategy in, in the region, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, we're trying to get a little more, a little, put a little more meat on the bones of some of the things that have been, as you alluded to, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo had laid out last summer uh, some ideas and a tiny bit of money, really tiny, uh, but, but, uh, but a start. Um, and, uh, you know, they've endorsed the, the creation of a supercharged OPIC, uh, which uh, is going to be called something like the U.S. Development Finance Corporation that starts up this October. Uh, we've endorsed that in here and say that's the kind of thing we ought to be doing and it ought to be working with, with Australia um, mm -hmm. to find uh, joint projects and opportunities to expand infrastructure, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so happy to talk about some of the specific uh, findings and recommendations when we Great. go through. Uh, thank you. Session. Well, Thanks. let me turn um, to Mark next uh, to, uh, to talk about the, some of the findings and recommendations in the financial sector. Um, the report took a look at um, you know, finance in the region and obviously the need for more financial services uh, liberalization, um, the, the, the questions surrounding the IMF, IMF reform going forward. And, um, and the question of the regional safety nets when it comes to finance in the wake of the Asian financial crisis over 20 years ago, uh, a number of mechanisms, regional, bilateral, were put into place, including the Chiang Mai, inter Chiang Mai Initiative, Initiative Multilateralization, CMIM, very difficult uh, acronym to remember, um, uh, but some other things. And so uh, could you give us your reaction um, to, uh, to some of the recommendations in the report? Great. Well, thank you. Uh, so uh, I, too, have known Gordon DeBrower for many, many years. And I've known Matt for many, many, many more years. <laughs> and a lot of the uh, financial work uh, in this paper finds resonance in work that was done by an Australian gentleman named Barry Sterland 
who was at Brookings for a while and was uh, one of their IMF and G20 reps and a friend and colleague of mine. So it's a great honor to be here. Um, the, the paper makes some very good overarching points that I want to start off with. And one is that the Indo-Pacific region is dynamic, it's fast growing, it's increasingly vital to U.S. interests. Uh, another is that it's important that uh, regional integration be consistent with an open, resilient, multilateral system. And the third is that uh, in doing so, uh, who could be a better ally for the United States and Australia? I know from years of financial diplomacy that uh, Australia and America are very like-minded on many issues. So turning to the financial recommendations in the paper, um, so I fully agree that the first line of defense uh, for the global financial safety net is strong policies at home. Uh, I also agree that uh, financial sector reform, capital market development are vital for mobilizing capital more efficiently and supporting uh, investment and growth. Um, and I also believe that trade and financial services can support such development, uh, especially if foreign firms bring in technology, know-how, uh, and experience, and etc. Now, I want to put some cautions on that last point because uh, we argued that point about foreign firms bringing in know-how uh, with the Chinese uh, ahead of the global financial crisis, and uh, the Chinese financial authorities were actually uh, receptive. Uh, to the arguments, but then the crisis hit and the Chinese told us that they really didn't feel they needed to learn anything more from their teacher. Um, and banking crises are always an endemic feature of the global landscape. We had the, uh, we saw that with the United States, we saw that in Asia in the 90s. So I, I think the focus shouldn't be on expanding competitive opportunities for uh, foreign financial firms as an end in and of itself but rather that the Indo-Pacific financial systems, in opening up, need to make sure that firms are well supervised, capitalized, and regulated to derive the benefits from uh, increased trade and financial services. Uh, I very much agree with the uh, recommendations in the paper on debt transparency and sustainability. Excessive debt burns can trigger financial crises. Um, there, a lack of transparency can be associated with contingent liabilities that migrate to uh, the public balance sheet that can be associated with massive corruption and the like. Um, you know, and there are a lot of interesting issues uh, about China's role in the region. And uh, I must say, if I digress a second, that I'm more, much more a fan of the AIB approach than I am the BRI approach. So the paper focuses a lot on global financial safety net and regional financial arrangements and their relationship. Um, uh, in Asia, there's the ASEAN plus three uh, macroeconomic research organization. This is a surveillance arm of, uh, of the ASEAN plus three. It's called AMRO. And then as you mentioned, there's this uh, CMIM. Uh, which is an unused uh, ASEAN plus three uh, multilateral currency swap facility mm -hmm. that could backstop IMF lending. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, on the GFSN, the Global Financial Safety Net, the paper properly recommends, in my view, that the IMF retain a central role and that the fund's resources be buttressed with the focus on IMF quotas 
and an increase in the uh, voting power of dynamic emerging markets. And then it also recommends breaking up the tradition of a European head of the IMF. So um, these sensible recommendations, in, in my view, are not gonna find much traction in Washington, D.C. these days. Uh, the Treasury, uh, just last week, reiterated its opposition to a quota increase. Uh, the Treasury appears okay with keeping, sustaining the overall IMF uh, resource envelope uh, by expanding the fund's backstop facility. Uh, but that means that without uh, impacting quotas, uh, one is not going to affect uh, voting power in the fund. And there are some Asian countries um, that have a legitimate claim to increase their role in the fund, in my view. And, and then there's the question of China, which is 6% of the fund, but 16% of the global economy and clearly deserves more weight. Um, given the tradition of a American heading the World Bank and the Europeans heading the fund, uh, Mr. Malpass's uncontested ascent to the World Bank uh, uh, job, I think, basically has reinforced the Europeans' claim on the IMF seat. So I think that uh, all of this is going to promote drift in Asia away from the multilateral order. Contra Not a report, but the, these, these trends. <laughs> Here, the next line I was going to say is contrary to the author's rightfully desired course. Is <laughs> okay. Is that good enough? Thank you. Okay. But so I had a few thoughts in these circumstances. So the GFSN uh, is a messy hodgepodge, right? You know, there are sound policies uh, at home, there's central bank actions at home, there's the IMF, there's regional financing arrangements. And then there is no global lender of last resort, but the Fed is about as close as it comes to it, although it has a domestic mandate, not an international mandate. So um, I think that um, uh, how these players interact varies and some improvements can be made. So for uh, Asian regional financial arrangements, um, this comes back to the CMIM and the AMRO, they can still rely on the IMF's technical experience by looking to the fund to lead on surveillance and conditionality. So AMRO could conduct joint missions, surveillance missions with the IMF, and the CMIM should continue to link its resources to those of the IMF and let the IMF lead on program design. So if there were to be a CMIM program with a country that had to go to the IMF, um, the, uh, the CIM is structured such that only 30% of the financing the country got would be unlinked to the IMF and 70% would be linked, and who knows how it would work in practice. Um, so let the fund lead on program design. And um, I guess one last observation, uh, and partly this is because of the distinction between APEC and ASEAN plus three, is that uh, these RFAs came out of the ASEAN plus three process, and Australia is not a member of the ASEAN plus three. And therefore, it's not a member of AMRO or CMIM. And I think that, um, nor is it an observer, I think this is something uh, Australia should uh, look at um, with considerable reflection. So I look forward hmm. to the rest of the discussion. Interesting. Um, and that last was a, was a recommendation in the report that, that Australia should look to link itself through observer status and perhaps over time more closely to CMIM and AMRO. 
Um, can I just ask a, a, a follow-up question on, on CMIM and these, this regional, how the regional safety net is nested or, you know, I mean, the, the point is made in the report that uh, these expansion of safety nets um, at the global and regional bilateral level have expanded the potential resources for a crisis, which is good. But there, it's not clear what the coordinating mechanism is, as you explained. And, um, and then I think, you know, in addition, because there's, since the, the CMIM arose in the wake of the financial crisis, the Asian financial crisis in 1997, 1998, um, under Japan's leadership largely, and since that time, there has not been a really serious financial crisis in the region. And so as a result, CMIM has never been tested. And so uh, as you point out, there's not clarity, there's not much clarity on how it would actually work in practice. So what could be done um, to increase the credibility and the transparency of how CMIM would work in relation to IMF, the IMF uh, in a crisis, is there is there anything that, that any steps that could be taken that would help clarify that? Do you think that would increase confidence in the system? Okay, great question. Um, not a satisfactory answer uh, because you know the global financial safety net is they say patchy, or I basically <laughs> think it's messy, right? And um, as I was trying to say, the roles and responsibilities of the various actors are not uh, clear. The IMF and RFAs did work out a set of principles um, to govern coordination, but they're very high level. I know that the CMIM and the IMF had, have done some uh, test runs or, or games, which is uh, useful, but I still think that there's a lack of clarity even within the CMIM participants about how it would work. Uh, so. When it arose, um, it was partly, uh, as you said, in response to the Asia crisis, where uh, the Asians were not particularly happy with the IMF. But as you've seen, countries like China have become a major creditor. Mm -hmm. You know, they're thinking, well, wait a minute, we've got to protect our taxpayer resources. And therefore, uh, in comes the link to the IMF. So 30% unlinked, 70% linked. But it isn't even clear to me were there a situation that the, uh, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans would be the main creditors, uh, would, might want 100% linked. And how, how would all of that uh, work out? So um, you know, I think they should continue the test runs. Uh, I think it would be great if Australia were in the mix because I think it could lend some uh, good thinking and expertise uh, to the effort and a pinch could be uh, fast on its feet and mm -hmm. very helpful. And I can't help but notice one irony in thinking about this issue, which is when the Asians in uh, the 90s came up with the Asian Monetary Fund, the US was not keen on this idea because it was seen as undermining the IMF and the multilateral order. Um, and now you see the Asians basically thinking, we do need to link with the IMF mm -hmm. to protect our money. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to the European crisis, um, and the Europeans are fighting in particular over Greece with the IMF, um, and the US view was, you know, Europe, pay for yourself, right? First with Greece, it was we wanted the IMF, but then it was, Europe, you should pay the lion's share of the financing. And the Europeans 
what little to do with the IMF these days in, in that context. Um, and so the Europeans are now talking about a European monetary fund. And it's a pretty hands-off approach. So there's been a role reversal between Europe and, and Asia over the last two decades that I find hmm. in, ironic and interesting. Hmm. All right, thank you. Um, let's turn to energy next. And, uh, you know, Nikos, obviously there's been a lot of changes in the, um, the supply of energy resources, especially in the United States. Um, Australia plays a big role, as, and, and the technology uh, in terms of extraction and sustainable um, resources. Um, and then there's been also been a lot of change in the demand side in Asia, you know, Southeast Asia and South Asia particularly. So the report goes into, you know, can you give us an overview of, of how the report looks at those changes and where the opportunities lie for, for uh, US-Australia collaboration? Absolutely, so thank you very much for having me and for this, uh, for this report. And I think, you know, what's striking to me when I think about the region is it's incredible how much of our future rests with what kind of choices the region makes in terms of energy you know, whether our planet will be inhabitable <laughs> in 50 or 100 years depends in part on the choices that this region makes about what kind of energy it's going to use. Um, and also because the center of demand has shifted to the region, um, the choices that the region makes reverberate back to the West. Uh, the price of solar panels has come down because of what happened in the region, what's happening on the electric vehicle side. So uh, what happens in the region is going to come back to uh, to the rest of the world as well. So, um, so I think what I wanted to do is uh, pick out some of the recommendations and sort of zoom in uh, a little bit of those uh, into those. I think the overarching objective that uh, th that I think about when I think of energy in the region is, you know, how do you basically avoid conflict? How do you make energy be part of the solution rather than part of the problem? Um, and to me, as the report rightly points out, this comes down to markets. It comes down to the idea that energy should flow in the region based on market principles rather than politics. It means uh, openness to foreign investment. And it's not just about foreign investment in sort of the traditional areas, but also in new areas. Uh, it's the ability to trade not just fuels, but also equipment and technology, and really be able to catalyze the transition to a new energy uh, energy system. So uh, the number one thing, which I think the report really uh, articulates well, is this paramount, the, the idea that energy has become largely, with a few asterisks, a commodity, that sort of buying and selling and price is the arbiter of where energy goes, I think is one of the sort of geopolitical blessings of the last sort of 50 years of the world. And, and keeping that uh, in place um, is one of the paramount objectives. Uh, the second thing that I think about in the region is this idea of the transition to new, ener new energy sources. And I think we have a few challenges there. Um, number one is uh, the human toll of our current energy system is enormous. And much of it is felt in the region. So the World Health Organization says there are 4.2 million people that died in 2016 for ambient air pollution. Uh, and 2.8 of those are in Asia. Uh, if you look at the cities with the worst uh, air quality in terms of particular matter, 2.5 of the top 100, 85 are in Asia. It's China, it's India, it's Pakistan, it's Bangladesh. Um, so there is an imperative to find ways to deliver energy to the region in a way that lowers the, that, that human and environmental toll. Um, and obviously a big part of the story is the continued reliance on coal. Uh, right now, 
you know, 75% of the coal that the world consumes is consumed in Asia. Uh, and if you look at the world outside of Asia, coal consumption is going down. The world, uh, the Asian market, the coal consumption is, is going up. Um, and we're going to have to have some more difficult conversations because who's supplying that coal? It's Indonesia. It's also Australia. Uh, the United States is there too, and the United States would like to be a bigger part uh, of this picture. Um, and so uh, it's going to be a, a conversation that we have to figure out to how to minimize the, the cost uh, to uh, sort of the environment and human life mm -hmm. and trying to transition that system away from, uh, from, from coal. And I think that worries me a little bit um, is, you know, most of my background has been in natural gas, so I'm a big fan of natural gas. Um, and obviously what's happened in this country has been transformational. If you look, though, in the region, um, gas is not doing great. Uh, and I think one of the challenges that I see, and the, the one addition that I would put on, the, on one of the recommendations, which is about better gas markets, I mean, some of the challenges sometimes is that if you improve the gas market on its own, you may make gas less competitive against coal, right? So you, you, Malaysia is a good example. The price of gas in Malaysia has been going up because it has to. It makes economic sense. But suddenly, gas is that much more expensive than coal, and so the, the country is using more and more coal. So I think we, we all have a challenge to try to figure out how to deliver gas in the region at a more economic rate. That. Um, the places, this is where the demand is, uh, but if you look at the world, one of the biggest sources of gas demand is in China. Uh, and if you uh, trust the Chinese national oil companies, they'll tell you, PetroChina, the largest one, they tell you they lose money in importing gas in the country. Right? So if you're hoping to use gas as part of the energy transition, but the product that you're delivering, the buyer says, I'm losing money selling this product, we have to do a little bit better. Uh, and obviously, Australia and the United States are the two largest incremental suppliers into, the, into this market. Um, the last thing I'll say, and I, I think the, the thing that makes me most excited about this, this region, and I think is on the opportunity side, and the opportunity is really that we're still at the early stages of the story. Uh, I was uh, looking at the numbers. You look at Indonesia, and you know, they, they have you know, 50 cars per 1,000 people. The uh, United States is above 800, right? So take Jakarta multiplied by 16, right? It's probably not going to be a fun city. Uh, but there's no reason it has to go to 800. We can write a different story. Uh, we can talk about mobility in a different way. We can think about how to design our cities in a different way. Um, you look at electric vehicles, and you, uh, you look at sort of China electrifying um, it's, uh, it's sort of busing fleet in certain cities. Uh, you talk about um, Australia and some of the incredible innovations at the, at the city level about how to redesign cities. So I think there's an incredible story here about we're still part of that growth and when things are growing, uh, we still have the opportunity to, to reshape them. And so I think once we, if we start from the perspective of we want to make sure that the energy system is, is open, transparent, fair, operates on market principles that you try to make sure that you deliver energy at an affordable level because the region needs energy to grow, but you're mindful of the environmental and social uh, costs of, and, and human and health costs of that energy. Uh, but then you say, you don't just need to copy-paste what the West did. You can write a slightly different story. I think that's the part that most excites me about the region. I think both the United States and Australia can play a very important role in telling that, uh, in, 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 in shaping that, that, that story.
Hmm, great. Um, let me ask about uh, a couple of other players that you haven't mentioned yet on how they might fit into this picture of U.S.-Australia cooperation. One is Japan, which is obviously very, uh, Japanese companies are very active in the energy space, uh, have a lot of technology and other things to bear, and is a, you know, an ally and a close friend uh, with Australia, uh, an ally of the United States, close friend with Australia um, as well. And then, um, and then Russia, which is uh, in current geopolitics more of an adversary, but um, obviously a big uh, supplier of energy to the region. Where do our interests with those players converge and diverge, and are they, does it make sense to think about incorporating them into a cooperative mix of, of working on the Asia energy? Absolutely, system? so let me start with Japan. I think uh, you know, the Japanese are the, an indispensable market when it comes to Asian energy, and in particular Asian gas, which is one of the areas where both the United States and Australia are are, are looking to expand their, their footprint. Uh, I think what's most interesting to me about Japan is, um, so the Japanese uh, companies, just to get a little bit into the weeds here very briefly, you know, after Fukushima, they increased their demand for gas, but as nuclear is restarting slowly, uh, and as, you know, aging society, not a huge amount of growth, mature market, the Japanese are sort of realizing that if we want to grow, we're not going to sell more gas in Japan. And so they're looking at the region as an opportunity to uh, build infrastructure, to invest in projects, to sell gas. Um, the challenge that I see, uh, and it's not just a challenge for the United States, uh, for, for Japan, it's also, I think, a challenge for the United States, is that you know, Japan has built a um, foreign financing structure that's basically, if we're buying gas from you and you use our contractors, we can finance you. And they're just now trying to figure out a system that says, you know what, you're not really necessarily buying our equipment or you're not selling us gas, we want to sell you gas, can, can we find a way to finance that part of the chain? So uh, it's the same challenge for the United States that uh, between the two countries, you know, the LNG infrastructure in Asia has been built very much with the support of, 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 of public finance. Even in Australia, you know, the Exim Bank mm -hmm. supported uh, LNG exports from, from Australia. So, so it's about trying to figure out how do you get New systems that can really meet the new uh, the new needs, and I think Japan is going to be an indispensable partner in that regard. On the Russia side, I think that obviously Russia historically has built up its energy system to supply Europe. That's the market. Uh, Europe uh, has its own challenges in terms of energy overall. Uh, also, very mature market. A little bit of anxiety about dependence on Russia, um, but also a desire to diversify from natural gas. So we've seen Russia over the last five, ten years really sort of shift its focus, not not in terms of taking away from Europe, but realizing that you have to diversify into the region, become an important supplier into the region. The way I think of this is, you know, there's a lot of attention that people that do what I do for a living spend on. You know, are Russia and China friends? Are they enemies? Are they frenemies? You know, what, what do you make on each individual occasion? Um, I think part of how I think about this is, you know, Russia can be a very important player uh, that actually acts for good in the region because, yes, they're sort of a competing supplier, but they also bring additional gas and oil into the market. They lessen sort of, you know, China's anxiety about energy security. Um, you know, one of the things that I have been writing about for a while now is, you know, the, the, the gas story from the West looks great. Uh, if you look at the top LNG players in the world, it's the United States, Qatar, and Australia. So if you're America, this looks great. If you're Beijing, this could look a little bit different, right? You're mm -hmm. sort of looking at a market out there, and you say, who are the big players? 
Um, so having alternative suppliers into the region, having alternative supplies that don't rely on maritime choke points, you know, those can have an important role in sort of stabilizing and diversifying the market in a, in a good way. So I, I think that the challenge for uh, the world is going to be, you know, how do you keep the Russian supplier role into the region as a constructive force uh, rather than some of the externalities that you've seen from Russian supply uh, playing to Europe. And obviously, you know, what, what you can do in Eastern Europe is not the same as what you can do to China. So there's some, some big differences there. But, uh, but I think uh, we have to think about the Russian role, not necessarily in a purely sort of negative way. I think there is a, a positive story there, as long as we can focus to keep it a positive story. Let me turn next to uh, two areas that are of big geostrategic interest in Washington right now and Canberra. Um, because these are areas where China is uh, making real inroads in the region in ways that in, to, in some ways are problematic from a Washington and Canberra perspective. And that's in infrastructure and the digital economy. So Bill, I'm going to turn to you on infrastructure and ask you to um, share with the audience uh, how the report views the opportunities and challenges in infrastructure um, in the region, uh, the, the dynamics around providing infrastructure to a region that badly needs it. There's a huge infrastructure gap uh, and a lot of resources are needed to fill that gap. Um, and, and how can the US and, and Australia collaborate? Yeah, thanks, Amy. So I think this is one part of, as you say, this is, there's a lot happening uh, at the moment, or at least a lot starting to happen. And this is an area where things were moving while the report was, was being written. And I, I think what I'd like to do is sort of give a snapshot of how we see it now. Um, and, and the context is exactly, as you said, this massive um, uh, underinvestment and, and uh, requirement for further investment for Asia. Uh, the ADB figure that we often quote is $26.2 trillion of investment required between 2016 and 2030, which is just a number that's too big to comprehend, isn't it? Um, I think broadly we and, and, and the US um, and, and Japan are in a project with two parts that, that are interrelated. The first part is to try and give countries that are trying to finance uh, infrastructure, given their infrastructure deficits, um, choices. So it's not to say they, they shouldn't uh, necessarily take the Chinese option, but let's give them some other options mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then related to that is uh, trying to also um, encourage a different model by which infrastructure development happens. Um, this is something I've heard USAID Administrator Mark Green talk about quite a bit. We're, we're trying to promote a different development model, one that um, uh, sees a private sector-led um, uh, opportunity um, and one in which we are trying to create the conditions in which private investment will flow and help to fill the gap. Uh, as opposed to the, the, the public balance sheet trying to do that. Um, obviously a pretty complex project and um, a long-term endeavour, but the, we, we've made a start in a number of areas towards, if you like, the, the sort of the long-term goal. Um, at the multilateral level, uh, I, I wanted to mention the G20's uh, infrastructure working group. Um, we we co-chair that and uh, the, the work that was done last year was on um, infrastructure as an asset class, trying to create the conditions in which the private sector will invest. Um, and of course with Japan's G20 leadership this year the focus is more on the, the quality infrastructure um, part of the puzzle, which is another very important uh, piece of the alternatives here. We want to 
make sure that the infrastructure options um, meet safeguards, they meet standards, they are good, they have a good return on investment, uh, they are sustainable, mm -hmm. uh, and they don't um, unnecessarily um, cause debt distress. So um, there's, there's work going on at the G20 level and elsewhere multilaterally. Um, on the regional side, there are things that APEC can do, and we're always trying to support APEC, which is, is often has very sort of practical mm -hmm. tools that can help countries. Uh, we're working with ASEAN on its mm -hmm. connectivity agenda. Uh, again, a sort of a big long-term picture, but we're helping them to sort of uh, fill that out. Um, and then there are a bunch of um, bilateral and trilateral approaches that are proceeding. Um, on the trilateral side, um, our leaders announced at APEC in Port Moresby in November a trilateral infrastructure partnership involving Australia, Japan and the United States um, and some specific initiatives under that including an MOU among development finance institutions and a particular P&G project, an electrification partnership. So that's, um, that's been useful and um, people like me are spending a lot of time at the moment trying to give effect to this trilateral infrastructure partnership and we're doing that in a range of ways. And I think you know, our aim is to start to provide a positive demonstration effect um, soon, sooner rather than later. Um, we've been doing uh, some reforms within our own um, organisation as well um, as part of a broader Pacific Islands step up, which we've really focused hard on over the last 12 to 18 months. We created an infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific, a $2 billion initiative. Mm -hmm. We've given our export credit agency, um, EFIC, an extra billion dollars in callable capital to allow them to get out there and do more. Um, we're working, coming back to the multilaterals, on some of the, the platform initiatives with the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, which help to create the project pipeline and create perhaps some investment platforms. And then through our development program, of course, we have a lot of work in Asia on the, the governance side of things, the mm -hmm. creating the regulatory environment, um, the procurement and all, all those other um, technical uh, processes which actually allow the right investment to flow. Uh, Matt, let me turn to you on infrastructure for a minute. Of course, you do a lot of work in this space with your Reconnecting Asia project and website. Um, but uh, you know, Bill's already mentioned one of the recommendations, which I think seems very straightforward and sensible, which is to develop a vision for infrastructure development and, and build a consensus around principles uh, that you would push through G20 and APEC on you know, open and transparent procurement policies and social and environmental regulations and, and, and uh, sustainable uh, debt sustainability. Um, but one, one recommendation I was a little, uh, is a little more interesting or, or perhaps puzzling, not puzzling, but um, I wonder how it would work, is um, the idea of creating a regional mechanism to empower countries uh, to advocate for quality infrastructure, infrastructure with these kinds of principles. And I guess I'm wondering what, what that would look like and who is the, is the thought that, that Australia and the United States would would pay for this, or everyone would chip in, or I mean, how like how would that what would that look like in practice? Uh, okay, before I answer, if we could pause for a commercial break, uh, just <laughs> to uh, say thank you for mentioning Reconnecting Asia. Please go to reconnectingasia.csas.org and uh, check out our map and database. We have been following this infrastructure story mm. across the Eurasian supercontinent for about uh, three or four years, and um, and uh, we continue to build it out and and add. Uh, new analysis and new data uh, to the site and, and it's the sort of basis for uh, my having the ability to answer a question like that because we've really learned a lot about this this story and I think um, 
uh, let me just first sort of footstop what, what Bill said. I think he's touched on all the, the right issues uh, in terms of the, the opportunity. I'll, 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 I'll one-up him on the, on the, the incomprehensible numbers. Uh, so that 26 trillion is the ADB number. The World Bank has a number of $90 trillion uh, by 2040 globally, of which about half um, will be in this region. So, um, so there's a huge need for infrastructure. And, um, and it's going to have to be filled through many different uh, means. But um, our government's coming in and trying to do, I'd say broadly, you know, kind of three things, uh, and they've all been touched on. But one is to establish a set of, of, of try to socialize a set of uh, principles and standards and best practices around, uh, you know, call it what you want, but, you know, quality infrastructure investment or, mm -hmm. or best value or good, good infrastructure investment. Um, I think that's something that we both bring to our involvement in this activity ourselves, and, and we have a lot to share with the rest of the region and how to do, do it the right way. Um, so, so um, and it gets to those issues of, you know, of, of open procurement uh, procedures, uh, 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 adequate uh, social and environmental safeguards, you know, debt sustainability, so forth. Um, and then the, the, the second thing, and it's interrelated, but is, is I think we need to work on risk mitigation because this is a risky endeavor, infrastructure investment. It's, it's a hard business in, in the advanced world. Uh, if you've you know, got here by metro or uh, <laughs> through steering around potholes, you know how difficult infrastructure is here. Imagine in you know, Kazakhstan or Laos or you know, uh, the additional uh, complications of political issues, corruption, uh, geography, uh, all kinds of other risks that are associated with this. And so if we want private money to go in, and there is a lot of private money, I mean, we could find $90 trillion in the private sector if you think of pension funds and insurance companies with long-term liabilities they have to meet. Uh, this is a good asset class in principle, but they're not going to go into this unless those risks have somehow been mitigated. So that's really what we need to be working on as governments, trying to help deal with some of those risks. And that's, again, interrelated with the third thing, which is capacity building and helping, um, helping uh, uh, the recipient countries uh, have the technical expertise and the ability to distinguish you know, a cheap project, uh, cheap and quick project from a, from a, a good, solid, high-quality project that has uh, from a life cycle cost point of view, um, it may be more expensive to build in the short term, but it's better maintained, it's better, you know, it has a better life and better economic impact. Um, and so being able to distinguish those things, we can help procurement officers uh, do that. And that's what, to finally answer your question, I mean, that's what that um, idea of a, a regional facility was. I, I don't think we got to the point of specifically thinking about a funding mechanism or a size of a funding or who's going to fund it. I think the idea was just in principle to try to get, uh, you know, maybe through APEC, get um, uh, the recipient countries together with some of the countries that, like Australia and the U.S. that are investing in this um, activity to try and uh, help uh, build that, that capacity and that ability to uh, you know, to, to decide what their development strategy should be and how infrastructure can contribute to that and how, you know, better infrastructure is uh, and, and sort of more from a life cycle cost point of view, more um, value, uh, best value infrastructure can be brought hmm. to this game. So, you know, we, we put it out there as an idea. We, we think getting maybe APEC infrastructure ministers together to talk about it and figure out whether there is possibly a fund associated with that, mm -hmm. I think is, is, is a possibility, but not one that we decided to pronounce on. But, uh, mm. but this, is a, this is a big topic and, and one, by the way, one more advertisement, shameless advertising. Uh, stemming from the Reconnecting Asia project, we set up a, a task force, a high-level uh, task force uh, co-chaired by former USTR Charlene Barshevsky 
and former uh, National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, uh, we're issuing our final report uh, next Tuesday, the 23rd of April, and uh, we'll have an event here uh, with Charlene and Steve um, and uh, welcome you to, to, to that, and, and that'll help flesh out some other ideas for how the U.S. can engage more uh, constructively and by extension, some of those things are things that, although it's mm -hmm. not addressed at Australia, um, could, we could do together with Australia. Great. Well, let me move to a, a different topic, also of great um, geostrategic interest right now, uh, especially in Washington, which is the digital economy. And, uh, and, and a lot of interest is around concern over what's emerging as a Chinese model in many ways of, of the digital space. Um, the report touches on a number of issues related to the digital economy, good regulation that ensures free flow of data and protection for privacy and intellectual property, the digital divide uh, between developing and developed Asia, um, and, and, and cybersecurity. Uh, but you have, you, you, you have one line in your executive summary that talks about um, uh, Huawei 5G technology and that the conversation around that should require sober analysis. And so I wonder if you could give us some sober analysis of mm -hmm. the, con I mean, how, the, that, how that conversation around uh, Huawei 5G technology or you know, the broader issues of, of Chinese yeah. development of, of 5G and other, and other technologies in digital space are causing some concern in Washington, Canberra, other places, and what can be, what, how it should be addressed. Good, fair question. Um, we, um, we, we put digital <coughs> into this uh, um, project because it's just so critical and uh, it's an area where um, the U.S. and Australia have such a stake in ensuring that there are um, appropriate um, uh, rules for the digital economy and ones that, that strike this basic balance between ensuring privacy and, and security. I mean, sort of those are two parts of of a, a broader point, uh, balancing that with uh, the need and the, you know, the imperative uh, from an economic and other perspective for data to flow. Data needs to flow because you know, if I keel over right now and I need medical assistance, um, I actually don't want you to ask me if I authorize you to give, use my medical records from Georgetown University to bring them over here. I just want you to help me. So the data needs to flow. Um, it's not just for economic reasons, though that's obvious as well. And, and I'd say, by the way, it's not just big companies that trade our data, you know, the banks and all that stuff that's, you know, that, that has raised these issues, or, or Facebook or all of that. You know, small, medium-sized companies need data to flow because they, they're only going to succeed in a globalized economy if they can get, you know, their stuff um, traded um, on, uh, through um, digital platforms. And so, so data flow is critical. But you know we have to have a bedrock of privacy, you know, sensible privacy mm -hmm. and security um, uh, uh, rules, and, and so that debate is very fluid right now. There's a lot of um, different ideas, different approaches. The Europeans have moved ahead with their um, general uh, uh, data protection regulation, um, which on one level was sort of a, you know a year ago or so when it was passed was anathema to. Uh, most Americans interested in this topic area, and now, you know, last week or two weeks ago, you have the, you know, the CEO of, of Facebook writing an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, well, maybe we should adopt GDPR, just to show you how fast the, you know, the, the, the debate is moving here in the U.S., that we need a better, you know, a, a better privacy regime here as well. On the other hand, you got China that doesn't think privacy of individual citizens is, is a high priority, uh, and um, on the contrary, you know, wants to, um, 
have access to everyone's data so they can you know, keep track of everyone. And that's a real concern uh, for, should be a concern for 1.4 billion Chinese, but certainly a concern for me. And, uh, and I think we need to have a, um, you know, a set of rules and disciplines. And the point is, the US and Australia did a huge, uh, made a huge contribution to digital governance in, and I promised I wasn't going to get into trade, but um, something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership <laughs> that we uh, worked on together um, that, uh, you know, that had in it not only a, a digital or an e-commerce chapter, but it had a, a, a series, a bunch of um, uh, sensible rules and, and disciplines on, um, on these issues. And, um, you know, we chose to walk away from it, and so we got to somehow figure a way to recreate that because I think it's, um, fortunately, Australia has moved forward with CPTPP to advance those rules. We've done some of this in the U.S., uh, Canada, Mexico, a deal, and that's good. We're, we're still moving forward, but I think there's a big opportunity for the, and a need for the U.S. and Australia to move forward and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and try to shape um, a, a sensible set of, of digital rules. Um, and I didn't really answer Huawei kind of deliberately, and I'll, I want to stop because I know the audience want you want to bring the audience in to, 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 to grill us. But um, I would just say that you know we didn't start this with a focus on Huawei um, when we started this. It wasn't quite the the, the front page story that it, it is today, and we didn't want to get too dragged down that rabbit mm -hmm. hole. But but you know I would say we do say it requires sober thought and the point is that you know here's a company that you know produces great products uh, for you know. Uh, uh, you know that are that are uh, economical for a lot of um, uh, companies that that um, and internet providers who want to um, you know want to um, offer uh, telecom services to uh, people around the world. By the way, including in the United States, a lot of rural uh, systems use Huawei equipment. Um, and um, you know, on the other hand, this is a company that that does raise you know concerns about its uh, uh, its connections to the Chinese government and. Um, uh, raises issues that have uh, uh, created concerns in the, uh, you know, in the intelligence communities of, of a lot of countries um, about uh, about the the risks of having you know only Huawei equipment in a in a new 5G uh, uh, backbone of, of their telecom infrastructure. So um, you know we're all debating this, and um, you know I think U.S. and Australia have made a pretty clear decision about you know not using Huawei equipment in, in their 5G networks. Um, uh, others are still debating it, you know, Germany, Britain, others. Uh, but, uh, but I think this is uh, something that we, we think needs to be thought through uh, to make sure that we're getting that balance right as well. Um, so. okay. uh, and before I open it up to the audience, I think, you know, I'd be remiss to not touch on the fifth area that you, the report mm -hmm. looked at, which is investment facilitation. And, you know, it was interesting to me that the report, you know, makes the point that, um, you know, investment uh, uh, investment and facilitation uh, in many of these countries, they do a reasonably good job at the front end of attracting investment into the country um, and the back end, but in the middle in terms of sort of ret retaining investment through good regulations, uh, there are more challenges. Do you want to briefly yeah, just elaborate 30 on that? seconds. I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious that investment is, is a, a major driver of growth and development, you know, everywhere um, and certainly in this region. Um, and foreign direct investment has been um, has been a huge catalyst for, for growth in a lot of countries uh, in the region. About a third of global FDI goes into this region, and, um, and it's a very important uh, catalyst to growth. It brings, uh, it brings uh, jobs, productivity gains, um, it brings um, capital, it brings technology, and, uh, and so it's an important thing. 
uh, to the, the, the progress of this region, so it should be encouraged. I think everybody kind of basically agrees with that. What the insight you're referring to is really comes from the World Bank, which in its um, 2018, I think, a global uh, infrastructure, I'm sorry, global investment um, competitiveness report highlighted this point of investment retention. As you said, you know, countries are getting better at promoting investment or giving tax breaks to bring in investment, uh, and, and they're more or less, not, well, they're not necessarily good at, but there are mechanisms for dealing with, with exit, um, you know, with dispute resolution or, you know, um, or, um, you know, other, other means of, 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 of exit, but, but in the middle, retaining investment, keeping it there, which is a function of, you know, good governance and good regulation and um, rule of law and all these things that re are required, Bus business climate, environment issues, um, is really what we should be putting our policy focus on. So that's really what we wanted to draw attention to in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, let's open it up to the audience. We covered a lot of ground uh, on a lot of different sectors that all relate to prosperity and how the United States and Australia can, can work together along with other partners in the region. Um, any questions for our distinguished or panel? Or rebuttals? Uh, yes, the yeah. man here. Could you uh, uh, wait, just wait, wait for, for a mic. microphone and then please briefly introduce yourself and ask Yeah, a sure. My name's Keith Tuckwell from TetraTech. Um, really nice to hear the views from Washington and Canberra. That's great. Um, really interested in what you think the views are from Port Moresby um, and from Suva um, and from Port Vila and from VNTN in regards to what you're doing an offering or we're doing an offering vis-a-vis -vis what China and India are doing or offering. Is there buy-in? Is there traction? Um, what, what's your sense? Bill, you may be best positioned to answer the question about where the... You, you're talking yeah. specifically about the Pacific Island countries or the broader region, you know? Pacific Islands are very different to, to Southeast Asia. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so they are different and so the dynamics are a bit different, but maybe there's some, some commonality. Um, I think the commonality is that uh, everybody wants to see the United States constructively engaged in the region and even in the Pacific Islands where the US has not been especially present, um, the US is welcome um, uh, and the US just needs to find the right way to, uh, to, to get engaged. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's any issues there. There's also a lot, you know, others would be, Amy would probably be well placed to comment on this. The, the amount of debate in those societies and those countries, both in Asia and the Pacific, about the role of China has really gone up um, uh, in the population and I'd say among the leadership as well. So, um, you know, I think that's a, that's, that's a trend. Um, particularly on the Pacific Islands, I think, so we have made a very um, visible show of sort of stepping up and trying to uh, cement, if you like, our position, we, we aspire to be the partner of choice for the Pacific Island countries, especially those south of the equator. And I think that's been welcomed broadly. And, you know, there, there are some wrinkles in all of that, but we're doing things like enhancing labour mobility options, which is very popular. Um, more finance opportunities for infrastructure is broadly popular. So, you know, I, th I think the, the change has been well received. Um, the level of political commitment has, and engagement has gone up and you know, we have an election coming, let's hope that that is sustained over time. And then um, if, if I sort of switch to Asia, um, I, I think that it was always true that uh, the, the Asian nations want a variety of partners. One thing that's true there and, and in the Pacific indeed is that they don't want to be 
asked to choose. Mm -hmm. um, they want to be able to um, have a smorgasbord of options. Mm -hmm. And um, so the better we are at providing good options, uh, the better we will be. So, you know, it, there's some potential for some pushback. You see a little bit of this in the Pacific Islands, you know, oh, you're only doing this because of China. Um, we have to be careful about that. But broadly, I think uh, the, there's a lot of appetite for engagement of Australia and the United States in, in, in the region. I'll just briefly chime in to mostly concur, although I would say that the United States is, along with New Zealand and France, a resident power of the Pacific Islands. There, we do, there are some territories there, the U.S. territories, and, and then, of course, freely associated states, uh, compact states. So the United States has been uh, you know, one of the largest donors, mm -hmm. although not as big as Australia and New Zealand. Um, but over the years, it's been a large donor, and, and certainly on the security side, there's been uh, strong relationships, especially in Micronesia. But having said that, the United States doesn't show up in the way that it, it probably should to some of the key regional meetings, the Pacific Islands Forum, and I, there's been some effort in, in, in the Obama administration and now in the Trump administration to uh, step up our own uh, Pacific Island engagement. And there is real interest in having more American engagement in the region. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense that America, along with Australia, New Zealand, and other countries really share their values, their open societies, uh, uh, strong religions, um, strong journalism, you know, free press. And so there's a sense that you know, they, they're, they're pretty clear-eyed about China and the upsides and the downsides of engagement with China. And I think there is a growing concern in these countries about some of the downsides of, of engagement with China, some of the things that China brings um, through infrastructure projects. The Hambatota port in, in Sri Lanka is seen all over the region, Southeast Asia as well as the Pacific, as a sort of you know case study of what can go wrong. Uh, but, um, uh, but at the same time, they, they want engagement with China. They want economic cooperation with China. They just want alternatives as well. Um, and there are interesting dynamics within many of these countries in terms of the government's relations with China and accepting Chinese finance and engagement and some degree of popular concern and backlash. So it's a good time to step in with, uh, with alternatives is what I would say. Yeah, I think you guys have said it all, just to flag one more thing, which is that the Asian Development Bank's having its annual meeting mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks mm -hmm. in Fiji. Fiji. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so uh, I think that they're going to be trying to probably highlight some of the issues that we're talking about here mm -hmm. as well. And obviously, U.S. Australia are big contributors in mm -hmm. shaping uh, that Yes, here. Uh, um, could you briefly introduce yourself? Ask a question. Mike Senko, U.S. State Department, retired. Financial systems you refer to in the second recommended action, the Asia Region Funds Passport. What is that in brief? Who's signing up for it? Who isn't? And what's in it for, again, some of the smaller states in the region, such as the island nations? I confess, when I read that, I also did not know what the Asian Regional Passport was. Matt, are you best um, positioned to answer that? Well, actually, if Mark can help, maybe, but uh, to be honest, um, you've stumped me. I think this is one from Gordon's side of the, uh, the Pacific. Um, actually, I don't see it. I'm looking at the... It's, um, it's, maybe it's in the full report. Oh, the second oh, the, recommendation here. Oh, right. Yeah. The Apex Asian Regional Funds Passport. Uh, to, to encourage all countries to sign on to and implement the use of Apex Asia Region Funds Passport. Ooh. 
Gordon snuck one in. You snuck one in. You stumped us. Pass, passporting means, uh, of course, that you know this, this is like a huge debate in Europe, uh, particularly with Brexit. So if a firm is located in London, um, it can conduct transactions anywhere in, in the union. And a predicate for passporting is that uh, all countries should be meeting similar high quality standards. But like most APEC things, I assume it's a, um, you know, it's a voluntary thing. It's not a, uh, it's not a formal you know, sort of regulatory endorsement of others' you know, approaches or whatever. It's probably you know, something that broadly encourages um, you know, cross-border um, financial services activity yep. in the region. Work in APEC progress. Want, want to do. Yep. Uh, yes, the gentleman in the front row here. Um, Anthony Olford from the Australian Embassy. Thank you all for your contributions, but a question specifically for Nikos. Um, you spoke of well the need for well-functioning gas markets, and in the context of two countries that are selling natural gas, LNG, into the region, the, the need for well-functioning gas markets is, is obvious, the need for transparency, openness. Um, but there's that mutual interest, and at the same time we're competitors, we're selling the same product into the region. So in the context of mutual yet opposing interests, how do we as two governments cooperate to improve those markets? Yeah, so um, there's a couple ways I think of this. One is you're kind of competitors at the corporate level in a, in a way sort of, I mean even in the United States there's a, a number of companies that are exporting gas that are competing with one another. In Australia there are a number of companies that are uh, competing with one another. So uh, I, I don't see that competitive element as being hugely, uh, hugely significant because in a way the, the two governments sort of have a broad direction of wanting to support sales into the region and then you know it's up to the companies to see who can make the deal work. Um, I think in terms of, of, of transparency um, you know, this is a this is really a tough one, um, and if I can do kind of like two minutes of sort of geeking out on gas issues, um, I, I mean it's really tough because, uh, I in a way, historically, kind of gas markets have been uh, the price has been linked to oil. Uh, contract terms are incredibly non-transparent. You kind of never really know who's selling to you know who's selling to whom, but not under what price and other terms. Um, what we've seen historically is. If you want to change that and move to sort of a liberalized market where supply and demand sets the price and, and it has the features that we all recognize as sort of market fe features, what's happened in the United States, it happened in the United Kingdom, it happened in continental Europe, it usually had a strong government support, sort of a government push that said, we want to change how this market works, we want to support this, we want to open it up, we want to deregulate it. Um, and I think sometimes the challenge that I see in Asia is that desire to open up the market is coming up against a desire for energy security and, and not sort of messing with the formula that has delivered energy for the last 50 years. And so I think the challenge or the opportunity that I see is to communicate to the region from countries that do have well-functioning transparent gas markets that there isn't as much of a tension, right, that you can actually open up, be more transparent without jeopardizing your energy security. Because I think that's really the challenge that I see, uh, say from like the Japanese, if you tell them, do you want a transparent market? They say absolutely. Um, but when you see them sort of in practice, they'll still go back and say, I want to sign some long-term contracts to make sure that I have supply security. So, so I think it comes down to demonstrating um, that 
liberalized markets can deliver security. And it's also one of the recommendations I didn't talk about. Uh, it's on the governance side, sort of the International Energy Agency, and the idea of kind of showing that there is a multilateral system for, we have a multilateral system on energy for oil, essentially. And kind of like all the other fuels are kind of like fending for themselves. Um, and so I think having more engagement on trying to think about now that gas is becoming more globalized, how do you bring that into the fold of the international governance system? Those are the kind of things that I see uh, as making a little bit of a difference in raising the comfort level in the region with a more liberalized sort of transparent gas market. Great. Uh, another question here? Yeah, Bill Eichert, consultant. Um, just a question, and, and I tend to ask questions in the energy space, so Nico's probably expecting an energy question, but it's a little bit broader than that. And I'm wondering about, have, did, you, did you look at the question of state-owned enterprises and how state-owned enterprises can either be a headwind or, an, or a, a benefit to the kind of collaboration that is being discussed in this report? Because I, I was kind of scanning it. I didn't really see it addressed specifically. But what, it, what is your thinking about state-owned enterprises and how it fits into this? Well, in the very beginning uh, of the report, um, we, uh, we have the sentence that I think is actually probably the most um, important one in a way in terms of what we're, we're mutually trying to achieve uh, overall in the, in the region, which is you know, both countries share a deep strategic interest in keeping Asian markets open, contestable, and rules-based. And I think, um, though we don't get into um, you know the role of the state or state-owned enterprises in the economy, I think it's implicit in kind of everything we're talking about there. So I mean, the the narrow answer is we didn't really in this report. In other contexts, I and probably everybody on this panel is in some way um, uh, focused on on state-owned enterprises, but uh, we didn't explicitly look at that. Um, uh, but we but it was implicit in in sort of everything we're doing here that we think you know sort of a market-based, rules-based system is, is the best uh, one across all of these issues um, across this region. So, um, but, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a narrower answer on it, not in the context of the report, but just how to think about state-owned enterprises in the energy space in yeah. this region. I mean, the, the one thing I would add on the, on the energy side, I mean, I guess two things. One is what we know is a lot of the energy decisions in the world today are driven by governments, right? Um, and so whether it's a mandate or it's a state-owned enterprise, so so you, you can't sort of say, oh, I just want an energy system that doesn't have government in it and hope to get very far. So we have to engage with the public sector, uh, whether it's on the mandate regulation or the state-owned enterprise side. But just to build on what Matt said, you know, when I think of uh, state-owned enterprises, say, in the oil and gas space, uh, I think of the importance of, of rules and markets, right? So when state-owned enterprises from China go and invest in Australia, they have to behave the way sort of that everyone else behaves in Australia. So you have Chinese companies that have invested in LNG projects in the eastern part of Australia, and you know they're subject to the same rules, same regulations. They have to behave. So, so I think the the question really is how do you set up a framework that creates expectations that state-owned companies sort of have to plug into? And obviously, it's going to be different. You know how a Chinese state-owned enterprise behaves in. Australia and Papua New Guinea versus how it behaves in China, and, and maybe there's not so much you can do about how it behaves in China, uh, but there is something you can do about how it behaves in Papua New Guinea and Australia. And I think at least on the energy side, you know, there's occasionally, kind of like maybe 10, 15 years ago, we were very worried about sort of Chinese state-owned enterprises and where they were going and what they were doing. I think that's sort of lessened uh, quite a bit, and I think it's primarily because we've successfully showed, in most cases, not at all times, that if you have a well-functioning market, essentially the state-owned enterprise 
is subjected to the same constraints and rules that everyone else is, 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 is subjected to. And that, in a way, lessens a lot of the anxiety that comes from, uh, from assuming that because they're a state-owned enterprise, it would behave differently. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming out and uh, hearing um, the, this panel talk about this important project. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you, guys.